Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast, a show where dreamers and doers share stories of discovering, developing, and spreading their joy with the world. I'm your host, Thad Devassi, along with Jeremy Slagle. In this podcast, we set up shop inside the Roosevelt Coffee House to speak with its founder, Kenny Sipes. His not-for-profit coffee house, while still in its infancy, has become a local favorite in Columbus with an undeniable community vibe and an unwavering commitment to social good. interesting is that Kenny didn't have a lifelong dream of running a coffee shop. And that's the story we wanted to hear. How did this once troubled kid who became influential on the record store scene and then a youth pastor find himself here at the intersection of being an entrepreneur and a social justice advocate? Life is an interesting journey. And join us as Kenny shares his journey on the Joy Venture Podcast. I used to run one of the largest independent black music retail stores in the country here in Columbus at Broad and Yearling. It was the old CD and tape outlet, right yeah, the tape yeah, outlet yeah. chain. So, like, I know all of those, you know, Marshall Shorts and J-Rolls and all of that crew yeah. from back in the day. I was the, the white do- white dude in the hood. So, um, I mean, I, Sony used to fly me to New York to, to bring the 40 most prominent independent black music retailers in the country. They'd fly 40 of them. In every year, and there was 38 black guys, or three black men or women. Yeah. One white woman who had married, her husband was black that owned the shop in Atlanta, and then there was me. <laughs> and it was awesome. That's why my Twitter profile is me and Beyonce. Yeah, yeah I, were, love, I love that. So you were the white shadow. The white yeah. shadow? Yeah. Was it, was that yeah, it was basketball. That was a white TV shadow? show back yeah. in like the 80s. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah that, that's definitely right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I have some pictures like Bone Thugs and Harmony and Little Kim's crew, and it literally looks like they photoshopped me in. I'm like, I'm, I'm literally, I was in that moment, but even I look at it and go, did I not do that? Because it looks like somebody put Danny Tanner with red hair in the back and some old sweater and like called it a day. But <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. We're good. Well, let's... Uh, We're let's, recording, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's just go ahead right. and dive in. Yeah. <clears throat> Kenny, we're, we're um, you know, in this great space. Uh, Roosevelt's, what, two, two and a half years old now? Yep, Is that right? exactly right. Um, I want to kind of work our way up to what you've built here. Um, sure. But I think to really appreciate who, you know, where you are now, I kind of want to, we don't normally do this, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning. Yeah. And, um, and sort of, you know, knowing of you and, and loving your shop and, and uh, just doing a little deeper dive on... On where you came from, and, and, and you know why you're interested in the things that Roosevelt's interested in, I stumbled upon a variety of things that um, you know articles you've written, podcasts you've already talked on. But there was one thing in particular that like just punched me in the face. Um, in part because I'm a I'm a big music fan myself. Um, find out that that you are, and you know, as, as you just mentioned, you know running a, a record a record store uh, here in Columbus, but. Um, You'd written this piece for um, a website called Best Case Scenario. Um, and if you don't mind, I want to read the opening paragraph. Yeah, feel um, free. That, that you had written, so I'm reading your words here. 
and said, there was a time in my life, uh, there was a time I was left to my own devices to conjure up hope and inspiration. And as a result, I was my own worst enemy. And I was a teenage drunk. At the age of 17, I was arrested and institutionalized for 40 days and in drug rehab. I'm going to stop there because I'm going yeah. to let you fill in the blanks here. Sure. Um, people see Kenny now. You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is, we're pretty far removed from that point in time we in are. life. Um, and they see this great guy doing amazing things and what this coffee shop, uh, Roosevelt Coffee Shop, and its, non, its nonprofit venture, what it stands for. Talk about being a 17-year-old kid that's lost. And, and we'll work our way up into how you you know, where you are today, but this is a vastly different story than, than I think people are aware of. Yeah. Mid 1980s, you know, the party scene was uh, thriving. I think, uh, I mean, I think Columbus was actually the quaalude capital of the world. And I mean, you know, just, I lived in that party scene, suburban kid, only child, but just trapped into it, a really insecure kind of kid. And, um, you know, found some answers and, in drugs and alcohol and kind of chased that and it became my identity and um, that paragraph that shares about being arrested just came to the point in time where um, about 10 days before I uh, got escorted to the rehab center I was I just I moved out got kicked out kind of a mutual kind of scenario Mm -hmm. which is devastating for my parents being an only child and um, they eventually pressed unruly charges against me long enough that I could get a police escort to the rehab facility in Columbus at the old Talbot Hall at St. Anthony's Hospital at the time. So, mm-hmm. um, so when I say arrest, it wasn't dramatic, but it was like they needed to put me in a car that I wouldn't jump out of so that I would actually show up and end up in that rehab center. And, yeah. uh, and that was the beginning of that. The actual, uh, the last time I ever used drugs and alcohol, I was in there from November I used to know this really well. It was like November 2nd to December 11th. And over Thanksgiving leave, somebody snuck in LSD into the treatment center. And oh there's about gosh. 40 kids on the unit and maybe 30, 30, 35. And uh, so about eight kids ended up using LSD in the rehab center, which included me. And uh, it's usually when you know you have a drug problem. If you're sneaking drugs into the drug rehab center, that's probably a real key sign. Um, But that was kind of the beginning of the end of hopelessness for me. Um, I remember a lot of lies in the next couple days got out of those things. And then we started. I remember remember being in this... um, group therapy room it was like all the guys in one room with the counselors and it was just kind of like a gender group and I was wasted you know but nobody knew I was wasted other than the other wasted people and uh, everybody was smoking in that room and it felt like 9,000 degrees and it felt like there was so much smoke I couldn't see in front of me and my felt like my head's bouncing off the ceiling and I think to myself I never want to be this way again never and I, which is a really hopeful thought, but I'm in the middle of an episode that's not going to end for probably 10 more hours. So it was like a moment of sanity, yet I was, in the, I was under the influence of the insanity of drugs. And so the only hope was maybe at the end of that that I actually captured that thought. And, uh, and it was a rough week. We got caught, and I threatened suicide to the whole staff, and it was really bad. Um, but I exited out of there in November of 82, never to use drugs or alcohol again. Wow. So, you know, at 17, to sort of make that, I'm never going to do that. Well, you know, this is, this is before the drinking age was what it is today, right? right. And it's like, well, that sounded good then, right? Yeah. And, you know, but my 
my, my buddies are hanging out tonight, right? I mean, so, you know, the, and then you're 18, and then you're 19, and then you're in your young 20s, right? And, and how, how did you find a way to sort of really put that, that sort of stake in the ground to say, I remember what that feels like. I'm not going back there. I, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm basically going to I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn around and go the other direction. For me, it was Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I started showing up at meetings, and it became kind of my community. So, I mean, I was going, I mean, there was a point in time because I was working second shift. I was going to sometimes 15, 20 meetings a week. I could go to a noon meeting. I'd go to an 8 o'clock meeting. I'd go to a midnight meeting. I build community there. And then I, I kind of fell into a really interesting era in AA, which was mostly, you know, older people who had gotten sober and here I was a 17 year old kid who's six foot three and redheaded pretty hard to miss and so just kind of had a reputation and I stayed sober and that became kind of a hopeful story um, and then I got really involved in like um, inner city meetings that were predominantly in the black community and so my mentors became these old wise sages in AA that kind of taught me life and taught me uh, community and taught me altruism and probably can trace back the altruism of the personality of the Roosevelt, even back to them, for the for the, the, the success of AA is predicated on the more you help others, the more likely you'll stay sober. So um, that became kind of inundated in who I was and, and what it took to remain sober. And then the benefit is I don't drink and also other people get maybe some mentorship or some help or some ability to see hope in their life too. Yeah, yeah. So... Kind of help us follow this trajectory of, so, you know, this is end of high school, like, ish. So, you're you're in recovery. You know, you're kind of always in recovery, right? And, mm-hmm. and so, what's what's the what's the career path for a kid that's kind of hit rock bottom? Trying to pull himself back out, sure. walking through it. Where, where, um, where, I don't know if I've ever had a career path yeah. uh, thought. To tell you the truth, I've, 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 I usually mentor people and tell them, do what you love and the money yeah. will come. Um, so back then, I actually was a sky cap at the airport coming out of high school. My dad was a long-term airline manager. And uh, so I was there and um, ended up working in the rehab center not a couple years later um, as a treatment aide. And then... Um, then I got into music business and started to, so I went from music business into retail um, and managed uh, stores for about 10, 12 years and did DJ work on the side for about 15 and then left those positions to become a youth pastor and left those to become here. So, um, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I don't know where I know people from because I worked in hospitals, airports, retail, and church. So you see a lot of people. <laughs> You're not for sure what scenario. But, um, yeah, for me, I, I, I never saw college as a trajectory for me. I just done, I knew how much I had wasted my high school years away. And, uh, and so I just kind of put my nose to the grind. I was raised in a family without college education, and my dad was, um, you know, the manager at Northwest Airlines for Columbus. He was assistant manager in Minneapolis and then transferred here and put in 35 years, and so I saw what hard work and discipline and, you know, building allegiance with the people who would end up working under you, how uh, powerful that was and how usually it set forth in motion some good things yeah so on that list of things you just kind of jump from one to the other one of the you just kind of flew past just now as you talked about being a youth pastor yes um did did your time as a 17 year old in rehab play into the fact that you wanted to be a high school youth pastor um i would say not at all um i got sober in aa with uh you know there's no concept that the whole model of spirituality is higher power 
God as you define it. So really open-ended. Um, and I would say for probably the first 10 years I was sober, even the name of Jesus nauseated me because I just thought it was as real as Santa Claus. Um, and then about 10 years in AA, I was married and um, started having kids and I started to sense that what I needed spiritually wasn't deep enough. And then so I became open-minded to check churches out. And um, so when I was 30, um, not 96, I got saved and baptized in that church and a couple of years down the road they were like i um some interesting things happened so i uh i started coaching low league baseball because i hated i hated this bad word but um <laughs> the you know the, the baseball parents the yeah. soccer parents you know oh, those oh, i know those. i just like i'm just not into screamers and i never understood it and it's like you build into a kid and you don't give him any privileges unless he earns it you'll be great so i started coaching you know and my son was pretty good but i didn't give any privileges because he was my kid right so it's kind of like yeah i mean ethan I, you know, I usually would have to move Ethan up in the batting order because the parents are like, he's, he needs to be batting higher, you know. Um, but, you know, but just loving And what happened is I got written up in the Pickering paper, like this coach does great things by being an encourager. And I got recruited to the church to teach eighth and ninth grade boys. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years later and it's Kenny uh, being asked to be a youth pastor. And I'm up against a guy with a master's in divinity and they give me the job. So, so, so I guess my question, though, is, is like, that sense of hopelessness, lost identity, uh, that kid that was that high school kid that you recalled from yourself. I mean, did you feel like in any way helping kids be able to find that identity at that age versus having to go through the hard stuff you went through to find it? Do you feel like that played into that at all as far Um, as... I don't know specifically. I would say two things. One, I think it led me into... Um, having a heart for at-risk students. So sure. I would go to local right. high schools as a youth pastor and just volunteer in the guidance counselor department and say, hey, listen, if you got kids that you're uh, exasperated with, and I understand, I mean, if you got a kid ain't going to listen for eight periods a day, he's not affecting me, so I'd be glad to help because I was that kid. So yeah. I was able, that definitely led into that. The other thing, when I became a youth pastor, I was just fascinated. Kids wanted to learn, you know, because when I was coming to high school, I just thought kids who went to church were nuts. You know, just, <laughs> goop, you know, nerdy, nutty, doofuses right and it's right. like who is who does that did it because mom I, and dad made them yeah right. and then i'm going to church and these kids are just like i mean you're like teaching them principles of scripture you're teaching them principles of life and they're doing them and you're like wow that's pretty <laughs> impressive like you're 15 and you're so stinking mature like i just never saw that so for me it was uh, uh that my own experience kind of um, allowed me to have a little more appreciation and uh, a little more awe of what God could do with students because I didn't think he did that, you know, yeah. because I, I didn't allow myself to have that experience. So can we, let's, I'm going to shift the, the, the timeline here a little bit. So you, you mentioned you were in the, you ran a record store for yep. years. And so and then you did this, and then you were doing Little League, you were married, you had kids, and then you're asked to do the, the pastor job. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to infer sure. here of what I think. I, I'll fix it if need be. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you, you watch your dad work hard. You realize, hey, college isn't for me. You understand. You, you know what hard work looks like. Well, you, you mentioned to us maybe before we were rolling here about 
how you grew this record store into be something significant, mm-hmm. right? It's the trajectory is going up. You know, um, I don't know if the pay is going up, but it's like you know, you're you're doing well, and we all kind of know that you know, ministry is not you know, you want to make you you want to make bank, you don't you don't go into ministry, right? And so you're building a family. How do you talk about that? Even that pivot from hey, I'm kind of I'm kind of a somebody in this sort of record world, and then. I get this. I get this over here, right? And it's like, do I do I follow the call or the purpose, or is there more notoriety and money here? Is there more comfort here? Talk a little sure. bit about that and, and the challenges, or maybe no challenges, of making no, that decision. I, uh, I mean, I had kind of built that place in the record industry and done really well, um, but at the same time, it was starting to die. So, I mean, it was, it was 2003. Um, it was like just a about post Napster, pre iTunes, yeah. but um, you know, but I would have guys buy a Tupac CD and then another guy buy ten blank CDs, and that's all we'd ever see, as yeah. opposed to eleven Tupac CDs being yep. sold, you know, kind yep. of thing. So I saw the writing on the wall, but I still was invested in. I brought in a lot of urban retail um, uh, vinyl, so we had kind of started to supply the city with vinyl again, and. Um, but then this job came up into the church, and some couple things happened. So my wife's dad had a business and kind of invited me in about a year before this. And I'm like, it's just not me. I'm not a cold sales kind of guy. Yeah. And then uh, his wife was like, well, what about Lori, my wife? And she ended up taking that job, and she started making good money. So what happened is when I went from the record store to the church, um, I dropped about 40% in income. And uh, it was significant, but Lori was making more money, and there was a balance there. And then, just like I said, by that was '03. By '07, I was running the ministry, and I was, you know, I was making more than I was at the record store. So, I, I really do have a, a faith system or, or a mentality, it's just in business that says, "Listen, if you do what you love, here's what happens: you, if you're good, you're going to get paid." And you're going to do what you love. You'll probably be a better husband and a better father because you don't come home exasperated from the pains of work because you don't find work to be a pain. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. So you're doing something meaningful. You're helping minister to youth. You're seeing in them what wasn't there in you. Why do you leave that? Oh, that was a hard one. (laughs) Um, that uh, that was tough. Uh, I have a weird. I now I kiddingly call myself. I probably should stop doing this. Like the oldest millennial alive. I just like. <laughs> I mean, I was at a church event the other night, and I was like, I don't really have any friends my age here. I'm going to go sit with the 30 year olds again. So, um, but um, so all that to say, I mean, there was there's there's some kind of quirky thing where God has gifted me with students. I mean, yeah. I invited five friends from the shop that I built relationships through here last night, and they were ages. 20 to 26 you know I mean that's who my friends were last night Um, so um, you tell me how how far you want to dig into this what basically happened and I've told this story before but is in in, I went to Africa in 08 my wife said that man never came back and kind of rattled who I was at the core kind of changed to the way I saw things I led a lot of domestic and international mission trips which I loved and was was moved by and um, but what I saw was uh, 
Uh, it was much easier to mobilize a student for impact outside of the context of the body of ch- in the church than mm-hmm. in, if I was use example, I could put a 15-year-old girl on a roof in the ghetto forever, just the worst inner city situation ever, but because she's helping somebody who will never be able to put on their own roof, and it might be 110 degrees, and she might have to do it for 10 hours a day, she'll do that over trying to invite somebody to church 10 times over. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to East St. Louis? Let's go. Um, and so I kind of saw a lot of that, and I loved what I did. And uh, But through that, my wife eventually came and said, hey, listen, if you ever need to leave the church, I'm at peace with that. And I said, what's that supposed to mean? And <laughs> she said, uh, I'm just telling you, I think that if you're led to do something else, you don't have to come home and convince me. So I think my wife's gift has always been discernment. So mm. I think she already saw that there was something going on, and I loved what I did. So I didn't see any of that coming. Yeah. Um, and a couple of years down the road, I started to wrestle with that. And um, I uh, we went to a conference, kind of had a really interesting experience, kind of. I felt like I was supposed to walk away without a plan. And uh, my wife's like, yeah, I'm not feeling that. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not either, but that's the only like peace that I have. Um, and so for me, and there's more to that story, you, uh, you feel free to dig in as much as you want, but it just came to the point that I, as long as I stayed on staff because I felt compelled to do something else, I was being disobedient. And no matter how many kids might come to Christ or I was taken on mission or I was mentoring or things were happening for great goodness, um, it didn't matter because what I was supposed to do was not that anymore. And it, the more I stayed, the more frustrated I became, even though I loved what I did. It was a really strange time. 48 years old, four kids, you know, not much of a retirement, you know, like not the time to risk. Um, but... Um, what is the point of faith that you don't risk? I mean, isn't that the whole, I mean, comfortable does not, comfortable and faith really don't really fit together. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was kind of like I, I was supposed to move into something else and I had to take that step um, as much as I love students. And the beauty, beautiful thing is, like I said, who was in my house last night? I mean, God's replaced that. He's filled that part. And uh, so it's been really sweet. And then, you know, all of these eighth grade kids I had 10 years ago are now getting married. So now I get to pastor weddings. And so some of that's coming full circle. Sure. That's great. Yeah. uh, Thad and I can relate to going to another country and not coming back the same. I mean, that's both, that's part of both of our stories as well. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of work with a local organization called Asia's Hope uh, and have been to Cambodia and we send a lot of our love and a lot of our money uh, over there as well. And it's just become something that's you know, in some ways, you know, something that's our, our part of our business mission. So we, we totally understand that. That's absolutely, it's, it's something you can't explain unless you do it, you know, right. it's right. just not something that that's you why can, I mean, like, you know, a lot of people will have a negative effect on, you know, like short term mission experience and stuff, but I'm just right. like, I feel like everybody should have one experience like that to yeah. a third world country just to get maybe some perspective. Oh, yeah. And I really love, we, I was taken last two times we went, we did Cambodia also for two weeks and we took seniors in high school. So the last thing they did before they entered college was a third world experience. And I think it just sort of it's set essential. that stage yeah. for the way they see their education. And um, through the Africa and the two Cambodia trips, I took about 28 kids altogether out of those trips and I would say 26, probably of those 28, are leading incredibly godly centered, um, you know, in perspective lives, you know, not first world problem lives, you know, <laughs> kind of thinking through the lens of um, the whole, the global world. And it's just been, it's beautiful because you kind of see what that does. And I mean, it, 
I mean, come on, that rocked me when I went over there in 08 at the age of 43. So yeah. what do you think it does to somebody who's still feeling emotion at 17, man? Yes. It's like, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, uh, I was 42 when I went and adopted my son from China. And it, it rocked my world. Two years later, I go with, with Jeremy to Cambodia. And it's, you're right, you know, I, you did, I didn't come back the same person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life takes on a different meaning and a different trajectory. I, I want to you said something about your wife I want to touch on because I've always felt like my wife was three steps ahead of me, you know, like getting the visions of like, it's, it's all clouds back here. She's got rays of sunshine. Right. And and just the importance of having that person in your life that actually gives you permission. I mean, to hear your wife say, Hey, if you're ready to leave when you're not thinking about leaving Mm -hmm. to give you that sort of permission, how did that help you make the decision to say, I think I want to do coffee. Right. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, we're talking, you know, three, four bucks a cup here. You know, this is where we're going. And, and yeah. so you talk a little bit about the vision that you had. And I, and I, I obviously, I think you can obviously tie this back to that idea of, you know, having, you know, taking someone into the urban core and having them roof a house and, and, and minister in that way versus, mm-hmm. you know, dragging in the church that this, how this actually became, ministry so to speak talk a little bit about that um it's funny because we kind of had a little bit of that start when the, the kids were kind of curious last night at the house asking yeah. you know like hey we see kenny all the time we know he's in, in it like so like you always stood behind him on this and, yeah. um so she would say yes but when i resigned i resigned in november 2012 and we didn't land on a plan till may and i think those six months frustrated the snot out of her right <laughs> so like in september of that before i resigned I went on kind of a vision trip to Nashville, met with some organizations and some friends. And I remember she just wrote a note, go get him, Tiger. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, though that was important to me because, um, like, I'm a people pleaser. So, you know, there are some things that I might just do because I'm going to do. But at the same time, you know, having that affirmation. So, like, if you ever need to leave. And um, and she just saw a lot of things. Like, even going back to an Africa trip, I, I was... Uh, I got back on like a Sunday and my oldest son was a travel baseball player and we were in a tournament that Friday. So five days later, one of the parents said, hey, Kenny, how is Africa? And Lori said, oh, he's not back yet. And mm. that and that, that's kind of defined like the whole, it's like, you're right. I'm not, I mean, I was grumpy. I was frustrated. I was anti, you know, I was anti-American, but you know, you start to think oh, like materialism's crap. You know, what are we doing? Um, so she kind of stood me. I think she was frustrated in that time. And, and again, the reason I brought those kids over last night to our house is because I get to appreciate and experience the joy of what the Roosevelt, those, all five of those kids were able to testify to why it's so important to them to be here and what it's meant to them. Mm-hmm. And my wife doesn't get to experience that. So she doesn't get to get that affirmation. And I, you know, I told those kids last night, the Roosevelt's the hardest thing our family's ever done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet, um, so I get those accolades or those affirmations with people like these kids. And I need, I brought you to my house so my wife can participate in that. Um, because, I mean, it's, it was rough. You know, it's been rough. And um, we've been tested in every way. We are financially strapped. Like, I mean, like my wife said last night, we were, you know, we, were, we, we got married young. We had kids young. And we always were struggling financially. And finally, we were in a place when I was in ministry where that was no longer a concern. And we are back to the financial insecurity of a 20-year-old again. Okay. And, uh, you know, in the first year, the dog died. My son got diagnosed with chronic illness. My father passed away. And we're like, 
what is going on, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, she is definitely, um, uh, she deserves all the pats on the back for, you know, um, those things. And she's kind of, she's, she has limited social muscles. So if we do one event together and I got three that week, I'm doing the rest of them alone, you know, yeah. just kind of like, and that's fine, you know, and that's the way we tick. Um, but, but yeah, I would say for her that my job really is to continue to affirm um, her support along the way because I think this is harder on her than it is on me. Sure. So talk about that moment of, uh, you know, the sort of fact-finding mission that you're on. You go down to Nashville and you figure that, that it is, it, this is going to be what it is. How, you know... I, did you have history in coffee other than maybe being a, a connoisseur? I like to drink it, right? They didn't think, I'm going to start this, and it's going to look like, not like Starbucks. It's going to look totally right. different. How, how did you, A, get the vision um, to do this, and then B, do it? I mean, because, it, it, you know, it's it's building out space. It's it's getting suppliers. It's, it's investment. Mm-hmm. This is the part where people go, yeah, I'd sure love to do that, comma, but. And then that's where the story right. stops, right? So how did you push through, you know, erase the comma, erase the but, and kept going? Never done coffee, never opened a business, never organized and run a nonprofit, never signed a commercial lease, yeah. um, never had to find a building to facilitate um, what we were trying to create. Um, I would say a lot of things that line up is funny. I was thinking yesterday, I created this weird, we had a church barn and all our youth group was in it. And I had really kind of, we really remodeled the big room and trying to create a bar like atmosphere, like bars, like counters on the wall. It's just really cool. And I created a thing called Homework Pod, which is basically, hey, from three to six, we'll just have coffee and the thing will be open. Yeah. Well, it just never worked. But I feel like it was a precursor to this, yeah. right? I mean, that would made me my training ground of like, what didn't work, right? Don't don't create a, a homework pod in a barn in the middle of nowhere. Maybe that was what it was. But um, yeah, so I think the Nashville trip, I visited a shop called The Well. And The Well is the only nonprofit coffee shop I've seen do stuff similar to what we're doing. Um, I mean, almost exactly. So most nonprofit experience we've seen in the coffee world were funded in some type of church experience. And we weren't really looking to do that. Um, and I'm inspired by my faith or I wouldn't have been doing any of this. Sure. But that wasn't. But they, that's what they do. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of unique. So that kind of stuck with me. But I, I was telling the story last night. Well, I mean, funny thing is, is we live in Pickerington. And um, around that time, a CeCe's Pizza had closed. And I t- told my wife, I said, we should open a coffee shop in there. And she says, we didn't leave the church to open a coffee shop. I'm like, okay. And then six months later, through that like frustration, we we're like, yeah. you need to make a decision what this is going to be. All right, do a coffee shop then. So, um, so all of it has been like self-learning and going to conventions. And again, I feel like this is the, the, what I tell every kid: if you if you'll follow through, and I mean, I was a 48 year old kid doing this myself. If you'll just follow through with like suggestions people give you, yeah. people will respect your initiative and your desire to move toward that stuff. And um, and that's what happened. I mean, for me too. I I think. The special thing about launching a business later in life, too, was, um, you know, you spend 10 years doing youth ministry with yeah. a couple hundred kids in your youth ministry, and you do 16 mission trips, and you bring all the kids back, and you do really special things that impact the children. Uh, the parents start to believe that you'll do what you say, and so we ha- I kind of have a, an aligned group that kind of help finance, you know, through... I mean, because we were a nonprofit, they help us fundraise and create mm-hmm. that space. Um, so a lot of it was just 
asking people to meet. And I'm telling you, 90% of the people, I would say 98% of the people in any level of business or authority in this city and around the country. I mean, I met an author named Ken Weitzma at a conference. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of Justice. And I just basically went through the autograph line and I said, he lived in Bend, Oregon. I was meeting him in Philadelphia. I said, hey, if I come to your house, will you give me a day? And he said, you come to my house, I'll give you a day. And so I came to his house and flew out to Oregon and, um, and had another experience in Salem and then went down to Bend and spent the day with him and then came back. But um, just kind of like I had some bandwidth, you know, financially that I used up. Um, but to travel and kind of connect with people to kind of get the be equipped enough to pull it off. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to you and. Every, you know, um, every business requires risk. Every, you know, major decision requires risk. I mean, the way you parent your kids, does, you know, requires risk because you don't know if when you're a new parent, you don't know if you're parenting, right? You're risking this moment to hopefully create a human being that's going to be productive and godly and, and, and safe and feel secure and feel yeah. valued and loved. Uh, and, you know, as a new parent, especially for me, being a selfish new parent, I was winging it, you know? So um, a lot of this was doing that, but just being persistent. A lot of, like, emotional, like, the 20 months leading up to open the doors was probably harder than after opening the doors because people started showing up. But, yeah, yeah, just trying to figure it out. And, uh, yeah, and then, like, we're out of money, man. What do we do now? And, you know, yeah. So was the vision always to run a sort of a, a social justice enterprise and then attach a business to it? Or were you going to like, nope, it's going to be coffee. Well, which was the, which one was the driver? Was I it would the social say there was, I've never or? heard of social enterprise after I opened the shop. Okay. So I don't even know what, what that was at Got the time. It. Now I'm getting invited onto the social enterprise board of the city. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I know what it is now. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I, I usually say in that, that time before I resigned, I felt like I'm either going to plant a church, I'm going to become a missions pastor, yeah. I'm going to become, I'm going to work for a justice org, I'm going to start a justice org. Um, and those are kind of like the things that yeah. my wife's like, you can't plant a church. My sanity can't take that. I'm like, cool, we won't plant a church. <laughs> um, and then I started applying to some places for a missions pastor, but yeah. it was very simple. I always used to, um, I was really gifted to leading missions, yeah. but I was a youth pastor. So when my resume went to a church, they were like, youth, youth pastor. pastor wants yeah. to be a mission guy. It would be the same thing when I was hiring for my assistant. Yeah. But I would get a my missions pastor resume for a youth pastor job. I'd been like, what does he know about youth, right? right. Um, so those doors didn't really open. Um, and, you know, so there was really no plan. I mean, May, it was kind of a desperate scramble. Like, we need to land on something. Yeah. And yeah. so that's when we kind of landed on coffee. And I mean, my coffee experience is, you know, it's a lot less creepy to meet the youth pastor at a Starbucks when yeah. you're 15 than it is to go to the church at the office. So, I mean, I lived in coffee shops. It's what I did. Yeah. You know, my whole church expense budget was, you know, treating kids to, you know, bente whatevers. Um, <laughs> so that was what we did. Um, so, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question or not. No. I mean, well, it's about... <laughs> It's about community for you. At least, right. at least that's what it sounds sure. like. I mean, I look, we're, we're in your shop right now. The background noise is obvious, but I mean, there are people here working. There's people here gathering. This place is packed. It's full. You're creating community, right? But then, then you've added this other component to it that it, while they're here, for whether it's just a good cup of coffee or meeting a friend or whatever, they're also doing good thanks to what you're doing with this coffee shop. So tell us a little bit about the 
the driving purpose behind what you're doing now, even right. though it wasn't the purpose to start? Sure. Um, yeah, I think one of the things I really tried to advocate to people when we were fundraising, uh, especially those the guys had the most money, was this thing that didn't have tangible result. And that's like you said, like you could put community in your mission statement, but it doesn't mean, I mean, Wendy's can do that. And God yeah. bless Wendy's. And if they did do that, good for them. But I mean, sure. it doesn't mean you're going to have community. It has to be kind of birth. Um, so it took two years to kind of figure out what we had become. And I think, and our core values came out of that. So our core values are love, justice, coffee, humility, and optimism. And so I know coffee doesn't seem like a core value, but we did not want to sacrifice the quality of the brand for the sake of the mission, right? So we have a vision for what we want to accomplish with the money that is brought in through here. Um, But if the coffee is subpar, then what was what, you know, then they don't come back. They they come back maybe once because, you know, that's a good idea. That's really nice. But the product's not good, then why come back? So... Um, it's a core value, but uh, but I think um, love is the core. I think a lot of like uh, and being 40, 48, 49, 50 years old launching it, um, there's just some things that I realized are important and not important. I ran retail for 10 years. I mean, I already told you about that. Yeah. I was not the greatest boss in the world. I was, you know, I did not know how to pick my battles. Everything was frustrating to me. And I, you know, I don't have those battles and I'm walking other employees and staff members through how to walk through battles that don't matter like you don't need to lose your mind over stuff and you know we're really blessed i don't know if it's a mission or who we are or what we had come across as but um not to jinx this on the podcast we don't get complaints you know we don't get people upset you know maybe we get one or two a week and but you know we're so accommodating like it's not a like i want you to have a successful great experience here so you come back because the more you come back the more we're going to fund and the more meals we're going to buy or latrines we're going to purchase or trauma therapy we're going to be able to purchase through the profits so we want to make that special for you and make you feel valued and that has been you know what has happened and then the do-gooders of the city come here you know the nonprofits and the ngos and the social enterprises and politicians on both sides and they just come because you know they know there's other people that'll be like them in the space. So it's like a little more advantageous to meet down here and maybe encounter other people that, Mm -hmm. you know, are working alongside them and things they are trying to accomplish. So so how how did you figure out, you know, beyond, beyond the core values, Mm -hmm. how did you choose the core funding opportunities to say, these are the things that, that when you buy, you know, a, a cup of coffee, and whether you you know you're tipped to the barista, and now you know part of, part of what you guys are doing in terms of you know just funding that out of out of operating capital. How did you choose those things? What's your criteria of For hunger, water, yeah. and trafficking? Yes, um, that is. Uh, I, I I often tell the story. I don't know. Like I can tell you everything: discernment of the wife, and the yeah. moments I had to get out of the job, and reason I resigned, and why I picked coffee. Um, I would say probably looking back, those were the three topic matters. We had done some activities in church. And so um, I'd seen, you know, if you find the right organizations doing long-term sustainable work, they're thinking through the process of a lifetime of work or creating enough sustainability that their work creates sustainability and then they can walk away. But they're not having hero moments of dropping a bag in Guatemala and flying away. That's not powerful. So, um but what has been beautiful, and I share this quite a bit, is that those topics um, are non-divisive, and that's probably been the best part of what's created community here, is that we can agree that nobody should lack freedom, 
starve to death or die of a preventable waterborne disease. Mm. Um, and so those are kind of unifying. Yeah. They don't, that there's, there's no racial stuff there. There's no economic stuff. There's no religious stuff like that. Just humanitarian. Like, okay, no, I don't want you to be enslaved and I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want you to starve and I hope you don't want me to starve and I don't want to die of a preventable waterborne disease, which is pretty rare to happen in the United States because of our privilege. So I don't want you to either. So um, those things became this like piece that, yeah, they're unifying. Um, they, uh, they don't create divisiveness. We can agree on those. And that has been pretty powerful. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things you just said was, you have people here that are politicians from both sides. I mean, we're in the capital city of Ohio. Yes. There's, you can't hit, you can't swing a dead cat in this area without hitting a politician. Right. Right. But, but what I like about what you're saying is, is when you create community, you're creating a place where everybody can come and they can all get behind this. It doesn't matter whether you've got an R or a D or an I behind your name. We can all get behind abolishing human trafficking and, and clean water. So that's, that's a really cool way to put it. Like, I think that makes a lot of sense. So how, how, how far has that come for you in terms of, you know, the, 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 the feel good notion of it is, you know, Oh, we, we, and not to say these things are bad. These things are all great. I can go to Kroger and I can round up or, you know, or I can do this. I can do that. Right. Um, I see on, on, on your tables, you've got like an annual report of things that you're, the impact that you're making. Um, how big of an impact are you making? Um, right. Talk a little bit about that and how that, how that sort of creates even a stronger community here because they're, they're seeing the tangible um, impact that, that by, by patroning you, they're helping in these areas. Yeah, um, I mean, we're we're just uh, we've got to do numbers for this month, but we're about two and a half years. We've given away a little over sixty five thousand dollars. Last year, we did about twenty six um, total in giving in all three areas, and um, we passed that in September this year. Um, so, a couple things: um, we try to be specific, so you don't, um, uh, you know, I'll. A lot of time back in the day, general fund giving was just it was fine, no yep. big deal, um, but. The millennial generation, that the younger, they kind of want specifics. So we really drive. Hey, this is how many latrine. This is how many hours of trauma therapy. This is how many art supplies. How many greenhouses? So we really drive that specific. Um, and uh, uh, what do I say? I I think too. Uh, what I always try to say is like a lot of people. Um, so, you know, like Kroger might give more on this. I feel like this feels a little more tangible. You feel a little more participatory. And I also think that. Um, some of the people that I worked with that, that just had a hard time connecting the dots about what we were doing, yeah. you know, just go, you know, well, why wouldn't I give to, you know, why wouldn't I give to my to a water org? And I was just always too snarky probably, but I would just go, so are you? And nobody ever was. And it's yeah. kind of like, so why don't you participate with somebody you know who's committed to doing those things and you know you're going to have meetings you're going to study you're going to do whatever you're going to go to a coffee shop you know so why don't you participate in that with us and and allow us to feed those organizations yeah yeah it's it's more concrete and less abstract by the way you're breaking it down because i think you know we all want to make an impact feel good but we don't know necessarily like ah, eh, we're helping something off in some faraway place and i don't really know if it's what good i'm really doing and you're you're driving that in more in real tangible ways for people um that's predicated you said earlier about having a good product that's I, we kind of glossed over that real quick but you know 
at least I don't believe you're bro- you're you're roasting your own beans yet. Maybe nope, that's, we're on the way. You're on the way. Um, Sample roaster, one of the employees' houses. It's coming. Go. There you go. Nice. So, but so how you know? Talk a little bit about that. About you know, this is all fine and well, but if you don't, like you said, if you don't have a good product, you don't have a customer base. Right. How did you find? A way to make this because we've got a we've got a variety of other you know roasters in town and independent coffee shops all great and and so how did you go about finding your unique experience that was going to bring people back in to make sure that quality was high you know from a guy that didn't run you know mm. didn't know coffee right. how did you do that well I, I learned specialty coffee which is there's actually a specialty coffee association of America and yeah. a lot of the great shops in this town are you know meeting those standards like Brioso and. One line and mission and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we uh, once I landed on coffee, I started doing pop ups at my house. So every Saturday morning, I just like um, do Chemex coffee and you know bring friends. You know, just my door was open, so sometimes five people showed up and sometimes twenty people showed up. But in that time, I started communicating with roasters around the country that were not represented in Columbus, mm-hmm. and uh, and I went to an espresso lab in Chicago. My son and I went to Specialty Coffee Associations uh, conference in Seattle for four days, and so we. Started started getting the education and started self-teaching ourselves and then we wanted to be third wave and um, so the the mission got out and then a couple of shops that understood we were committed to good coffee kind of invited us into what is now the Columbus Coffee Trail um, so one line um, which we ended up buying sourcing from one line and then Stumptown um, we uh, built a relationship there like you should join Experience Columbus and get on this coffee trail card because we want to feature the the best shops in the city doing the best coffee and that's what and we were on that card from September of 14 and we didn't open till April of 15 so we did like pop-ups and stuff and people come in here and get their stamps to kind of but so we create a reputation that we were going to do that yeah. and then Stumptown was only being served here in town at Kitty's Cakes actually Kitty's Cakes is the only place in Ohio other than us that serves Stumptown and so we knew that would give us coffee clout with people that you know because it's kind of like like I said before I hadn't opened a business hadn't done coffee hadn't done a nonprofit, hadn't done commercial lease hadn't looked for a building before do I want to add roaster to my list you know <laughs> and at that time it was kind of like probably not if we want to do the other five, great. So that meant we had to land on great coffee. And Stumptown was one of the finalists, and they just brought um, something to the table. We loved counterculture. We built a relationship with them. But right before we opened, they became the coffee source of North Star. And then we were like, okay, well, I don't want to – I want to have something that nobody – you know, so we were able to use Stumptown as a real marker to bring people into the shop. Yeah. And even, like, people can find a town who visit – Columbus, who don't understand that we have an incredibly ro- great, great roasting scene. Columbus has incredible coffee roasters. Um, sometimes they're going to go toward the familiar. They're like, sure. oh, that place is Stumptown. Oh, I love Stumptown. I'll go there. So um, it helps in all facets. It's kind of like the, the craft brew movement, right? Exactly you mean, right. I, I can support my local craft brewer, or, you know, I love the craft brew out there in, in Oregon or whatever, you know. Right. And we, yeah, we see that on the shelves. It's available. It's a, a choice now. Um, What's next? Um, well, right now we're, we're looking to expand to a second location and roast. Yeah. So um, we might do both at once um, or depending on if it, what the developers we're working with come to the table with, um, one may precede the other. But we'd really like to roast. We feel like we've built a lot of relationships in town. Mm-hmm. I think our model kind of fits, you know, some... NGOs and nonprofits who were like, yeah, I mean, if we could source coffee that we know are doing the same kind of work that we're trying to, you know, create and work with, 
we want to do that. So currently working with a pretty large co-working studio that we're actually our co-working facility, and um, we're going to facilitate them with uh, with Stumptown as kind of a liaison to um, them, you know, kind of be the wholesaler for them, and then move into our own roasting there. So. Mm-hmm expansion and roasting which is not anything i thought would be on the table when we open i mean it's just like hey let's make ends meet let's get everybody paid let's in- donate some money and we'll be happy and yeah. now you know now that we just feel like it's a lot of great local stuff you know that's leveraging you know some i mean hot chicken and jenny's and north star and um we really be excited to be kind of considered one of those local you know Icons, if sure. we can, and that's the goal right now. So that if we double our impact by opening a second store. That's exactly what that's we want to happen. Yeah, is there um, is there more of a sense of entrepreneurialism in you that that maybe you didn't have before? Now that you've done this, and I, a little bit. I mean, yeah. I just like I just had to register the Roosevelt Coffee Roasters with the state and stuff, and I'm like, I'm still googling like exactly who do I need to do that? Like, what <laughs> permit do I need? I'm like, I feel like I can't even remember anything from the first round. So, um, so yes, I think what I have is I have more people like people like you guys. I mean, mm-hmm. just great men and women in the city who I can just call on a whim now and go, hey, how do I fix this problem? How do I answer this? What do exactly do I need? Um, so I'm a, and then we just got a really great lawyer recently. Like our lawyer's family friend, incredible guy. But we, you know, with our tax structure, we needed a really great tax lawyer. And this guy's come on and just made some things a little simpler for us to kind of follow. So it's been really great. Yeah. So. I heard you mention um, your admiration for Jeremy Cowart. Mm-hmm. Jeremy and I um, both admire his work, and in particular the the um, help portrait uh, that he does, and then the, the purpose hotel that he's looking to build. Yep. And, and so, hearing you talk about um, uh, you know meeting a guy on one end of the country and saying, "Hey, I want to come out to your house," you know, which is bold. This is a bold <laughs> statement, right? And I, I don't think I could do that. Um, but there, there, there's a boldness in you. And so in that conversation, I heard you say, wow, I, you know, maybe, maybe I could you know, have that conversation. Maybe, maybe I'd introduce myself to Jeremy Coward and be the coffee shop of, of his hotel. I guess my question for you is, you know, not what's next for Roosevelt, but what's next for Kenny Sipes? Because you're, you've kind of been on this pretty incredible journey, right? Sure. And I, the, the good that you've done, whether planned out intentional or not right it's it's in retrospect it's pretty undeniable and and you've kind of got this vision i'm asking you as two guys sitting here in columbus who've (laughs) kind of done some create you know we started a podcast we got a couple guys together to do uh you know a photo camp for uh you know urban youth and we're kind of in that mindset that if not us then who Mm -hmm. not now then when sure and so what's that sort of big hairy audacious goal that's just out there that you can't quite reach yet like you know it'd be really cool if we could do fill in the blank Dear Jeremy Coart, I have hit you up on Twitter, and Jake Smith is a friend of yours, and he knows you should have the Roosevelt in the Purpose Hotel, so we'll start there. Oh, that would be, <laughs> that would be, be perfect. Awesome. We be fit awesome. the vision. Come on, man. Um, that's a great question. I mean, to be to be, I'm ne- I've never been a great five to ten year planner guy. Um, for me, um, you know, I would just say, like I said, I 
at the age of 50, decided to rip all the financial security out of my house. Um, And it coincided with my wife's business not being able to provide at the level it had before. So some of that money that we expected to be there wasn't. So um, I would just say my two or three year plan, actually my next year plan is just to be financially stable again, is not to have to look at my checking account to wonder what's going to happen next. So um, just kind of moving into that. And then I think, but but I feel like I've just been able to, is and continue to help Columbus mobilize itself to kind of. I feel like um, if I have a giftedness, it is connectivity. Yes. So um, I do a lot of meeting with people and then saying you should go meet with them and you should connect with there and um, and it's great because it's all kinds of you know faith backgrounds and race backgrounds and you know you know this guy's doing stuff in poverty and this guy's doing something with gardens and all of a sudden you know those things can work. So as long as I can still be a facilitator of that kind of effect in the community. I think that's really what I'm supposed to be doing, which is um, like my responsibility here at the shop has become a lot. Like I finally have delegated coffee ships except for one um, because I like to work around a bar at least once a week, but um, I'm, I'm supposed to do that stuff. And it's kind of funny. I just, I run a coffee shop. So it's kind of like, I know I met some people yesterday in an event. I know they're just like, how come everybody knows you? And I'm like, "Eh, it's just, it's just a thing, you know, but but it's also been a very powerful thing because I feel like we are able to, I mean, I can walk you through that room, probably introduce you to half of it. Half you probably know, and the other half might be effective for what you're trying to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. So I think my, my purpose is to be that unifier because there's too much divisiveness and there's too much hate in the world, and I don't participate in it, and I want to help be with other people, you know, steer their own, themselves away from that too. Yeah. So to the... So that's not even financial. That's just like, hey, you know, again, just like I think if you participate in the right things, the rest of it will take care of itself. Yeah. Just kind of waiting right now. But. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think that's where a lot of us get hung up. And I was one of those people for a long time, too. And, you know, we it's why we're doing Joy Venture. We've had an experience that, like, man, we want to we kind of want to spread our joy with other people. Absolutely. What, what would what would your advice be to that person that's kind of stuck that they don't feel like they're living out their purpose or what they were made to be or, or do, and they're in that cubicle, they're in that job, that that woman that just you know feels like it's I I can't you know can't, maybe it is raising my kids, but but the raising of my kids season is over and I don't know what to do. What I don't want to take a pay cut. Um, how, what do you tell these people that are that for whatever reason are stuck in their own? Rut, if you will, right? Because right? we, we do. We, we, when, we, when we plot a path, that path gets worn and that rut goes deep and it's hard to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you, for someone who's taken a lot of risk, and we, we, um, we have a good friend, uh, John, we mentioned earlier, John McCollum uh, of Ages Hope, when he was running his design firm, he said, I, I'm on the downward mobility escalator, right? You know, and it's like, <laughs> I'm making a whole lot less. Mm hmm. But for what? And he's he. There, there's purpose. There's joy. There's feelings of accomplishment. Other things that far surpass the numbers in your bank account. What do, what do you tell that person? Um, boy, I tell them a lot of things. You should read Bob Goff's Love Does. You should start there. Um, uh, God didn't create you to be miserable. Um, and I would also say, if you are, you know, if you're a scripture following person, you're not going to find biblical. Um, you're not going to find anything in scripture that affirms retirement. 
Mm. We we made that up somewhere along the line. Yeah. So, um, you know, even my dad retired and spent the next 12 years after running an airline in, in Columbus Airport, spent 12 years running a forklift at like Rickenbacker because he just wanted to work. He wanted to stay busy. So I... I, again, I, I go back to the adage: if you if you have faith and you don't risk anything, then you're wasting faith. Like, don't even bother; just move on. Because faith, it is not for comfortable people. Like, comfortable people probably have never had to exercise faith. You know, maybe they've created some kind of material, you know, structure of security that doesn't make them feel risk. But I think, um, you know, the more you risk in regards to especially like reputation and stuff. I mean, a lot of people think I'm crazy. I mean, a lot of people from, from my old spiritual experiences, they're just like, I don't get it. I don't even understand why it's working, you know? And it's kind of like, well, because I got out of the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think my, the, my favorite saying uh, that old guy taught me years and years and years ago, and just said, if you want to be happy, forget yourself. And I think now a lot of times I think like a, especially a woman who's been in a job for a long time who has kids, she, man, that is, that is her heartbeat, That's a you know, right? So grandkids is the heartbeat. It's the worst beat. I've got four kids. We're probably going to have my whole house full. So I feel some of that is for that maybe gets fed there. And sure. that's, man, the, my, our greatest responsibility was to raise four kids that get it, you yeah. know, and. Um, I don't think I raised any kids that are going to be millionaires, but they love the snot out of people, and they're incredibly good at it. And I think they're valued from their communities because of that. So, um, yeah, you kind of, yeah. If you're miserable, then you're doing the wrong thing, period. Amen to that. Um, Kenny, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. You know, I will say that when you talk to Jeremy Cowart to get in his in his hotel, then you need to tell him to come build a hotel in Columbus. And I think we got enough um, visionary people here that would love something like that too. Put it in your hometown. Yeah. You, you, you put the coffee in his hometown, he can put the hotel in your hometown. There we I think go. That's, I think that's I a like good your idea. Th- thought pattern. And then right he there. can be on our podcast. <laughs> All right. That's right. Sounds that's good. good. Yeah, Kenny, sure. thanks so much for thanks, sharing guys. your story. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you. Thanks to Kenny for allowing us to pull him away from the community he serves for a few minutes to share this story. If you want to know more about the Roosevelt Coffee House and the initiatives it supports across clean water, fighting hunger, and fighting human trafficking, visit RooseveltCoffee.org. And if you live in or are visiting Columbus, stop in and say hi to Kenny and his team. Not only will you get great coffee in a great space, you'll also find yourself, as we did, immersed in great conversation. If you like what you're hearing on the Joy Venture Podcast, we'd love to know about it. Head on over to iTunes or SoundCloud to like and follow us. And we'd love it if you'd write a review for us on iTunes so others who are looking to discover their joy can discover this podcast. Trust us when we say it really does help. To hear more podcasts or read our posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer in all of us to become the doer we were meant to be, visit us at joyventure.net. And if you're discovering or developing your joy and need some help creating your brand through design or story, we'd love to talk with you. After all, it's what Jeremy and I do. So please feel free to drop us a line. Until next time, remember, never stop discovering. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.